Good morning. Please join me by standing for a reverence of God's word, please. Scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true faith, true heart, and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, make our minds to understand and our hearts to cherish what you have to say to us this morning. Father, for your glory and our good, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're, we're making a transition, not the kind that's popular in our culture today, but a transition from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, or from doctrine, to now how we live. This is the part where yours truly is likely to get labeled a legalist, or accused of expecting too much from Christians and our people. It's also the moment where the quote, I just want to be a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, gets exposed. This is also the part where those who really love Jesus and those who really believe the gospel get really excited because they get some really clear instructions on how they can go serve the one that they love. This therefore, in this passage there at the beginning in verse 19, is like a hinge in the book of Hebrews. We are transitioning to this is then now how we live. And if you want to know what you believe, what you truly believe, then you need to look really not much further than how you live, than your orthopraxy. Your orthopraxy shows the governing beliefs that you hold to, the convictions that drive you. That's the shortest route to knowing exactly what you believe. Just look at your actions. Look at how you live. So now Hebrews is going to show us this is the reasonable way for you to live now in response to what we've been talking about for so many chapters. So we're making a transition. But there's a problem in our day. Again, as, as you guys are accustomed to, Understanding the, the rate of the flow of the stream that's pushing against us is crucial. To know what we're fighting against is crucial. Not, not just so that we know how to, to, to war outside of this, 
of ourselves, but do we know how to war inside of ourselves? Because understanding what's pushing against us is crucial. What's pushing against us from the inside is crucial. But there's a problem in our day. Hebrews 10, verse 19, the very first word, is therefore. Then you get to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, where he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, here's the the point that you need to grab a hold of right here at the beginning. What we believe must work itself into what we do. Otherwise, we don't actually believe it. But the problem is, in our day, that what one believes is much less important than how you believe it. You say, well, what do I mean by that? What's more important than what you believe right now in today's culture, what's more important than the actual content is how you believe it. For example, do you believe it sincerely? Do you believe it and feel authentic? Does it align with your feelings? And probably most importantly, do you believe what you believe in a way that makes room for the views of others? Is it tolerant? Example. See if I can strike a nerve here at the beginning. Had a family that was a part of what was originally called renovation many years ago. I said this statement. I believe we are most right doctrinally as a church. I believe we are most right. This couple was astounded. And many of you may be astounded right now. But here's my question. Why would we be astounded at such a statement? Because I'm implying that no one else believes as accurately as we do. Now, you've got to be careful. I'm going to give you a quick caveat, even though I don't like doing this. I didn't say that we're perfect, and I didn't say that no one else has anything figured out. That's being hyperbolic, and don't go hyperbole on me. That's not where I'm at. But here, well, here's what I want to press in on. Why would we struggle with a statement like that? Why? Because we're all supposed to believe what we believe, but we're supposed to believe that everyone else's belief is equally as true. That what I believe is just one acceptable belief among many beliefs. And so at the idea of saying what I believe is right and what that person believes is wrong rubs against the culture that we've all been indoctrinated with. You won't have time to write this down, but if you could, you should. You should believe what you believe while believing that my believing is equally as true as your believing. I'll say it again. You should believe what you believe while believing that my believing is equally as true as your believing. That's the world, that's what we're swimming in. Listen, if, if I, as a side note here, if I believed that there was something more correct to believe, then we should go believe it, right? We should change it, and we do. As God grows us, and as we become sanctified, we understand his word, 
we change. That's a good thing. But the problem, the reason why that kind of statement would just cause some consternation and tension in us is because we've all been trained to believe that we can believe whatever we want and they can believe whatever they want and it's all equally as good and true. But the scriptures call us to believe what God has said dogmatically and with great fidelity. We're to hold it. Someone recently said, why do we got to be so dogmatic? Because the Bible's dogmatic. The Bible doesn't make room for you to have a different view. A different view goes to hell. The Bible's dogmatic. Jesus was dogmatic. If you don't think Christians should be dogmatic, then you haven't read the Gospels. Or you haven't gotten to know Paul. There's a reason why they stoned him. It wasn't because he was too nice. There's a reason why Jesus was crucified. It wasn't because he was super winsome. Because he said what God said, and it cost him his life. Now here's what we're up against. Anyone who would have the audacity to draw hard lines and refuse to bend the knee to the spirit of the age will be labeled a cult, a bigot, a Nazi, etc. And honestly, if you haven't been labeled one of those, are you really actually confessing the hope that we have without wavering? Again, a part of this like problem in our day is, is there's a belief that kind of cuts across the old dividing lines. Let me explain what I mean. It used to be that Christians divided over what they believed to be true from the Scriptures. For example, things like immersion versus sprinkling, right? Baptists versus Presbyterians, and you're going to be in this camp and this camp, and both of those camps were saying we believe in sprinkling or we believe in baptism because the Bible verses say these, and these Bible verses over here say these. But now we divide over what is actually in authority. The Word of God is in authority, the truth of God's Word or someone's feelings, or someone's experience. And so you have a huge growing number of quote-unquote Christians who no longer believe that the truth is solely from God's Word and what sets us free, but my feelings or your feelings will set me free, or having the right experience will set me free. But we're told here, and, and a bit more in a bit, to hold on to our confession to hold on to the truth of what God has said. And the author here is going to tell us what to do, and it's all based on the therefore. So he's going to tell us this is how we're to live, and it's based on this truth, this reality, not based on these feelings, not based on this uh, emotion, not based on this experience, but based on this truth, therefore live this way. Because of all of the truth I've just said, live this way. The title of my sermon is, Here's the Truth, Therefore, dot, dot, dot. One preacher said this, to reject truth is to rebelliously reject God and suffer eternal condemnation. 
And the danger for you and I is that that will be our downfall too if we have a downfall. That's everyone's downfall. That was Adam and Eve's downfall. They rejected God's truth in exchange for what they believed to be true. Romans 1.25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I literally sat in a meeting not too long ago with a person who admitted on one hand that what they believed could be wrong, and when asked if I could help them think through the matter, they said that they were resolute in that thinking. That's insane. Why would, how could you say, well, I could be wrong, but I'm resolute and I don't want help thinking through it. How could that, how could that be possible? That's only possible when the desire for truth is not the authority in the person's life. But instead, maybe someone's feelings or a lie, or a particular agenda, or a goal to get to. That's become the authority. But the author of Hebrews has spent nine and a half chapters telling us the proclamation of truth as it relates to Jesus and what he has done. Did you hear that? Nine and a half chapters of Christ and his work and what he's done and what he's doing right now. He showed us this incredible picture. Now he's going to tell us what a natural and reasonable response looks like to the truth. So you've got to, which this is just good listening skills anyways, but you've got to keep nine and a half chapters of Hebrews in the forefront of your mind as we talk about how we should live. To put it a little bluntly here, I can't spoon feed you nine and a half chapters every time I give you an imperative. You have to have that in the back of your head. That's got to be slow cooking on the back burner of your stove while we're flash frying something up here in the front. Now, two summary statements for nine and a half chapters of Hebrews. This is what you've got to keep on your frontlets. Maybe get, it, maybe get your first tattoo or your, you know, your fourth tattoo, right? These two statements right here, okay? Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. At 19 through 20 is his summary of chapters zero or one through nine and a half. All right, that's the summary. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. All right, so for the record, if you don't have your Bible out, please have it out. You should have it out every Sunday and you should be following along. The therefore. The therefore, as Rusty would say, what's the therefore, therefore, right? The therefore usually goes like this. Truth statements, therefore, imperatives. But this time, it's truth statements, therefore, 
summary of truth statements, imperatives. This is a beautiful summary right here. And some of us are like, well, could we have just fast forwarded to the summary of the truth statements and just have at it, right? <laughs> yeah, I know it's on some of your minds' minds. Well, here we go. All right, now I can get all of Hebrews in two sentences or one sentence. We're in the summary of the truth after the therefore, but before the imperatives. The first summary statement here. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. So listen, with every imperative, you need to remember that we have access to God through Jesus Christ. Not through your fulfilling of that imperative. We have access alone to Jesus Christ. You must understand and remember, we have confidence to enter the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, period. So we can talk about all these imperatives all the day long, but you got to keep in the back of your mind, I can only enter by the blood of Jesus. Now I think that statement, we have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus, is lost on us for a couple different reasons. One, we don't know how precious and delightful it is to be in the presence of God. I think that's lost on us. Have you ever just thought and pondered and studied the scriptures of what it means to be in the presence of God? His holiness, His perfect love, His mercy, His justice, His goodness. To dwell in that. So I think when we say we have confidence to enter the blood of Jesus, for some of us it just goes over our heads or in one ear and out the other because we don't understand how profound of a, of a delight and an amazing gift that is. That we were created for that. Adam and Eve experienced that until they messed it up. I think it's also lost on us because we underestimate what it takes to be in the presence of God. I think it's one of the unfortunate consequences of understanding that it's such a free gift. Because it's easy to disconnect from the free gift that it costs someone something. It's like, it's like um, things we get from the government, right? Well, it's free. I get it from the government, right? It's free. We got this from the government. Man, someone paid for it. And it could be your future grandkids that are going to pay for it, like all this COVID disaster. It costs someone something. So the gift that it is to be in the presence of God was free to you and I. It cost us nothing. It cost God everything. It cost him his son. We underestimate what it takes to be in the presence of God. So think about applying. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way to lead a productive and godly life. To trust that through Jesus you have free and open access to God. Why would that be the only way? Because you don't have to fear running out of resources. You don't have to fear taking calculated risks. Why? Because your presence and your access to Almighty God is yours through someone else's payment. It's all yours. 
If you're going to freeze up in your walk with the Lord and conquering and subduing and exercising dominion for his kingdom, it will be because you are hiding in shame. That's our response when we sense guilt. It's a good response when we sense guilt. Man runs, he hides, he distracts, right? That's the garden. Adam, where are you? I mean, it wasn't because God, you know, didn't know. Adam was hiding. And he was just drawing out for us the fact that Adam was hiding. But a man or woman who knows they are welcome into God's presence because their guilt and shame has been dealt with will not run and hide, but will, quote, let us all the day long. Let us all the day long as this passage calls us to do. The second summary statement is this. We have a great high priest over the house of God. We have a great high priest over the house of God. Hebrews 10, 21, and since we have a great high priest, right? Over the house of God. There you go. We can enter into God's presence because our high priest is there. That's it. Here's at least part of the point. The one who opened and secured the way for us into God's presence is there himself. As our priest. Jesus is, we've talked about, this is why you need the other nine and a half chapters, because they're just summary statements. You know what that means? It means there's a whole lot more behind the curtain of the summary statement. But just to give you a taste, Jesus is there representing us. He's there pleading effectually for our acceptance before God. He's there securing and sending to us the Holy Spirit. He's there empowering us to be worshipers and priests before his throne. That's what it means for our priests to be there. So here's what you've got to remember along with, quote, we get to be in the presence with God, is that we get to be there not because we've done it, but because Christ did it, and he's doing it, and he's there. So as we talk about how we live, if you lose sight of those two truths, you will exchange them for lies likely like these examples I'm going to give you. I can walk into God's presence based on my doing. If you lose sight of statement one, which is we have access to God through Jesus Christ alone, the lie you will exchange it for is I can walk into God's presence based on my doing, based on my keeping this imperative. Two, the second statement, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Likely will exchange that for the lie of I have everything in myself to do what I am called to do. I can do it on my own. Or for some of you, it's I should be able to do it on my own. I should have this figured out. I should be able to do this apart from Jesus. So you have to keep these in the back of your mind. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. And we have a great priest over the house of God. So here, here we are. After nine and a half chapters of what Christ has done, he gives us three necessary and reasonable responses 
To put it another way, if you believe the nine and a half chapters, your life will look this way. Here we go. Let us worship. Let us worship. Verse 22. Let us worship. The first reasonable response, necessary response to nine and a half chapters. Let us worship. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. One preacher said this, worship is both our highest privilege and our most central duty. No, it's not Piper. We were made to worship God, and he demands our worship. Worship is most beneficial for us. In worship, we find the freedom to be what we were meant to be. Now, as we talk about worship, let's not make worship so ambiguous that it loses any power. So here's how I think, as we talk about, like, well, we should have a life of worship. Here's how I think we make this ambiguous and we lose its power. Quote, your life needs to be a life of worship. It needs to be all for the glory of God. End of the conversation. I mean, that's cute, but let's not do that. There's more we can say. The Bible says more, and it's going to give us some teeth. So let's talk about, because this is, this is where the author's mind is at. Yes, all of life is worship. You're worshiping something always. You're aimed at some target always with your worship. But in this context, he's thinking about the gathering of Christians. We'll get to that more in a moment. That's where he's at in verse 24 and 25. What's on his mind is gathering together with God's people for corporate worship like we are right now. Now again, of course, worship is more than just coming to church. Worship is, as one person said, our entire response to the mercy of God. That's what worship is. That's our response to the glory of God revealed to us by his mercy and grace, I would add. But one, one, one preacher gave these, I think, a good summary. And that is like that, that the author has given us four guidelines for worship. Four guidelines right here. So if, let us draw near to God. And then four guidelines of what that should look like. And what I'm telling you is, is we need to think about this in the context of the gathering of God's people. Because the way you gather with God's people, the way you worship when you gather with God's people, is how you will worship the rest of the week. Okay? This is, this is like prep. This is like training for tonight, tomorrow morning, the next day. I mean, the way you sit and worship right now is the way you'll sit at your cubicle and worship tomorrow when you put your hand to a different plow. Four guidelines. The first one is this, sincerity. Let us worship. It should be with sincerity. He says, let us draw near with a what? True heart, right? Get your Bibles open. A true heart. A true heart functions as it's supposed to. 
It's a heart with rightly ordered affections and priorities. Do you hear that? So if you're going to worship God, you need to do so with a heart that has rightly ordered affections and priorities. When you come to worship on Sundays, listen, this is training ground. When you come to worship on Sundays, you should do so with a true heart, a sincere heart. Let me define, let me put some teeth to this. A heart that is, first of all, present. Could you be physically present and your heart far from this place? Far from the worship of God? Absolutely. You should have a heart that is committed to the Lord, committed to His people, committed to His Word, and so on. A heart that is committed to hearing the truth. Let me give you an example. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and realized about halfway through that they were patronizing you? I feel like this often. It's probably because I talk too much. But as you're talking, they're nodding, and they're going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh. Anybody? Come on. Anybody? You realize, you know, uh-huh, right? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Stop it. Yep, uh-huh. I mean, I'm guilty of doing that too. But their eyes are glazed over, and they contribute nothing of value to the rest of the conversation, except for their uh-huh. And yeah, and you can really tell when they ask a stupid question that you could tell they really missed your point. Here, here's, the, here's, here's the example. They're not engaging you with a true heart. That person is not being sincere. So the question is, is are you sitting here right now with sincerity of heart? Let me, apply it, let me apply it with some specificity. To sit here right now in this moment is to say with your physical actions, I'm here to hear God's word, whether through singing or song or prayer, or singing, listening right now, preaching, prayer, and so on. I'm here to hear God's word. I'm here to obey God's word. I'm here to treasure Christ through God's word. That's... that's the physical thing that's being represented right now. So the reality is if you're not living that out right now, then you are not living in sincere heart. You don't have a sincere heart right now. So you're not drawing near to God with a true heart. It's insincere. If you're thinking... How can I grumble at this? Or what's for lunch? Or man, last night, this was fun, or that was bad. Your actions are saying one thing when your heart and your mind are doing something else. We're called to draw near with a true heart, with a sincere heart. So you can see Hopefully, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to belabor this point too many more times, but hopefully you can see if right now, when this whole entire moment is aimed at helping you worship God, that if, that if you don't do that right now, 
you sure as heck are not going to do that tomorrow when life is way harder. When that child is being disobedient, when that boss is being a jerk, when that person cuts you off, or when your spouse rubs you the wrong way. Draw near with a sincere, with a true heart. Next, in full assurance of faith. In full assurance of faith. We worship in full assurance of faith. We might say that full assurance is what is in the heart that is true. You see, the sincere, believing heart is filled with assurance in God through unwavering trust in Him and His promises. So here's the deal. If your heart is full of assurance of faith, then you would have hopeful expectation of enjoying drawing near to God. It's by faith. Full assurance of faith. The reality is you and I will only worship to the extent that we have full assurance of faith. What is it? Belief in who God is and what He has said. Back to the beginning. As we talk about imperatives, as we talk about doing, whether it's in this context or it's in the context of discipleship or it's in the context of a, of a parent exhorting a child or a, one parent to the other parent or one friend to the other friend, as you're exhorted to walk according to God's Word, you have to keep this in the forefront of your mind. You have to keep the full assurance of faith with a true heart that God is who He says He is and has done what He says He has done. You have to keep that in the forefront of your mind always. I mean, as we preach, I cannot hang those summary statements in your mind every time we talk about having to do something. Go love your neighbor. Oh, don't forget, Jesus made a way for you into his presence. Go tithe. Don't forget, Jesus made a way for you into his presence. Go stir someone on to love and good deeds. And don't forget, Jesus made a way for you into his presence. Read your Bibles. And don't forget, Jesus made a way for you into his presence. That would hopefully get a little obnoxious as we go. You have to do that. You and I have to do that work. Someone can't quote faith for you. You have to do that. Number three, it says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This preacher said, by sprinkling, he refers to the blood of Christ which alone sets free the sinner's guilty conscience. Through his blood, we know that our sins are removed and our hearts are set free from the burden of guilt. And it takes us back to that sermon I preached where I used that phrase, a low-grade fever, a low-grade depression. It's because we walk around and not realizing, not believing not grabbing hold of by faith that we've been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Some of us walk with a conscience plagued by the thought that you are still guilty. 
Now listen, for some of you, it's because you are still guilty. You haven't actually trusted the Lord. For you, repent now and trust the Lord. But for many of you, you don't walk around believing that the burden has been taken from you, that the guilt is gone, the shame is no more. Your evil conscience has been cleansed. It's been sprinkled clean, he tells us. Listen, you will not draw near to God if you do not believe by faith that your evil conscience has been sprinkled clean. Or you will only get as close as the extent to which you understand and believe that your conscience has been sprinkled clean. Right? You ever try to talk to someone where you're kind of unsure what they think about you? I mean, it's assuming you actually care what they think, but like... You're unsure what they think about you, and so you're like guarded with every word you say, and, and you're like uneasy, and there's like tension, and you're like, you're kind of like jockeying in that moment, and because you don't have to do that with God. And he, knows, he knows your sin more thoroughly than you do, and he sprinkled it all clean. You don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to play that game with God. You get to walk in. You get to draw near. He took all of your sin and he wiped it all away. You don't have to, uh, can I, uh, can I, with God. Number four, having our bodies washed with pure water. Having our bodies washed with pure water. I don't, I don't believe the point here is physical baptism but instead what it symbolizes. And that is a spiritual renewal by the work of the Spirit. A spiritual renewal by the work of the Spirit. How do we worship God? It's by a spiritual renewal that is only the work of the Spirit. That the Spirit has sprinkled you clean. I had a joke for all you Baptists. He says sprinkled here and not immersed. Symbolic, that's right, it's symbolic. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26, which are necessary for us to worship God as we should, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I think that's the picture he's, he's painting for us here. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26. So yes, all of our lives are to be worship. We're to draw near to God. And here's these guidelines. But how we worship when we gather together in God's name is especially important. Again, how you worship in here will be how you worship the rest of the week. That's the way the Lord designed the Sabbath. That you would reset and refocus and recommit. You would practice this every time the church gathers. So that when you walk out and put your hand to a different plow... When you're pulling weeds, when you're spanking a child, when you're having a hard conversation with your boss, that you would remember this is what it means to draw near to God. 
that you would worship. It's a day today, this moment is set aside to remind, realign, renew. It's a day meant to ripple out to the remaining days, like dropping a stone in the middle of a pond. That stone, when it hits the water, is like this moment right now. God is worthy, and we must come to worship Him, and not merely to seek some personal benefits. And we come with faith that there is forgiveness in Christ. And we must see our sinfulness dealt with. To see it, as the symbolic phrase, to see our sin dealt with on the cross. And if we're to see a side note here, if we're to see our sinfulness dealt with, that's why we should read the law and confess our sins, affirm our faith, and hear God's word of pardon as we gather for worship every week. We should be reminded of what laws have we transgressed. We should reaffirm our faith in Christ as the perfect law keeper. And we should hear God's pardon and His forgiveness for our sins. Next, let us. Let us be people who confess the truth. Let us be people who confess the truth. Now remember, uh, kind of where I started in my intro, the truth has gone out of style. I think I preached a sermon with that title. And I don't just mean our truth, I mean truth as a standard. Objective truth as a standard. Everyone has their own truth, even those days are gone. Now all that matters is really the narrative, or all that matters is how someone feels, their inner self, their inner emotions, those things, that's all that matters. Truth has gone out of style, but we're supposed to be people who confess the truth. Now, a wake-up call, but if in a world where truth is not the, the important reality, but the emotions, the, the experience, those things are, then if you're going to confess the truth, it's going to put you at odds with like everybody else. So FYI, just, just know that. If you want to suffer for Jesus' name, do point two, confess the truth. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So let's talk about this. Confession. What do I mean by confession? What's he mean by confession? A public and doctrinal confessing. Christians in our current culture, though, someone said, are super cavalier with their dealing of the truth. Many of us in this room are tempted with being cavalier with the truth. We readily trade our doctrine in order to get along with others. We readily trade our doctrine to create more impressive senses of unity. We trade our doctrine like lunch items at my kid's school. Doctrine that other Christians before us 
and around us outside of our culture have given their lives for. The only confession that's acceptable in our current age and culture is a confession that says every other confession is equally as acceptable. So let me ask you a practical example here. When you're presenting the gospel to a lost person, how do you go about doing that? Well, here's my story. Well, you know, here's what I believe. As if their story and their interpretation of that story can be just as equally true. Or just as if what they believe can be just as equally true. I mean, that's what you're implying. Why not? Here's the truth and the facts. Jesus is Lord and will one day come to bring God's judgment on your sin. That same Jesus offers you pardon through his blood. Those are your two options. Now, listen, my my point is not to say this. Here's how you have to share the gospel. Like, you don't need to write that on your arm and go repeat that to your neighbor, although it may not be a bad idea. Um, It'll get you some looks for sure. Ah, you may not make friends. That's not my point. But my point is, is why are we tempted to share the truth as though it's just one truth among many truths? Why are we tempted to do that? Why, are we, why don't we confess it as though this is true and this is good for you? And it's good for me or good for you for me to help you see as far as it depends on me that your truth that you, or that you believe is true is not equal to this truth. In fact, what you believe is a lie and it leads to damnation. It doesn't lead to anything good for you. And it doesn't honor the Lord. Why are we tempted To not confess the truth. And I think that's just one example among many of where we're tempted to not confess the truth. And he says our confession must not waver. So not only must this be your confession, but you got to hold it fast. Don't shrink back. Don't step to the left or to the right. Right? Remember that back in Joshua? Don't waver. Hold fast. Don't shrink back. I would remind you here that you don't win this battle when you're in the depths of the war. You win this battle in the mundane moments. As Rusty said, your training is what you'll default to. So how you train in your confession is what you'll default to when life gets really hard. You're not going to all of a sudden pull out superpowers in those moments. What will be revealed in the hard times is how you trained. And listen, some of you are like experiencing incredible freedom in really hard situations because you've been training in the mundane moments. And what comes out is your training. Of course, some of you beat yourselves up when your training is just coming out. Like, don't beat yourself up. You're training. It just means when you get out of that hard season, go train some more. Our confession must not waver. It's really easy for us. I think in our day, we've defined like this confession as just simply being love your neighbor and love God. And the challenge, and one of the practical challenges when it comes to that kind of confession, 
is that practically your neighbor gets to define what love is and we get to define what love towards God looks like. How do you define love of neighbor? How do you define what it looks like to love God? You define it by reading Genesis to Revelation. Jesus says, again, in Matthew 28, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. All that I have commanded. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope. What is our hope? Ultimately, it's Jesus. But how do we describe this Jesus? From God's Word. This preacher said, nothing is more important than what ideas we believe. Nothing so shapes the way that we will live, and nothing is more important to the Christian life than the content of the faith we profess. Therefore, we are not to be silent, nor to compromise the truth we have received, but to hold unswervingly to the gospel truths and promises that give us our hope. Nothing is more important. The last, let us. Let us be a family. Let us be a family. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Someone said this, this is not an invitation for us to be judgmental busybodies, making the lives of others a burden, but it does mandate that we take a, and I love this phrase, a lively interest in the affairs of other believers that we take a lively interest in the affairs of other believers. We are to study and implement schemes that motivate one another in godly living. Hear that? Study and implement schemes that motivate one another in godly living. Now he says, don't forsake to meet together. He literally means physically gathering with each other, which means you cannot count online church or listening to a podcast. I think it's really unfortunate. I go to a church's website and it says, please gather with us online. I immediately like hit close on the browser or something close to that. I would be fine with it reading something like, enjoy being a spectator from a distance as you watch online. That'd be fine. That should be like the title on that page. Listen, during COVID, the churches that forsaked gathering together were sinning. And those, on, those insisting on forsaking gathering together were sinning as well. I'm, I'm trying to split hairs over a couple weeks or whatever. But he says, do not forsake gathering. 
there is no exception clause there. Next thought, as we think about not forsaking to gather, I would encourage some of you to do math and reflection. Just very practically here, all right? Again, you got to keep all those nine and a half chapters in the back of your mind when you hear me say what I'm about to say. You need to do math and reflection. If you don't gather when you really could make it happen, and then you add those times to the times where you don't have a choice, like, like a major illness or you know, a virus, those kind of things, if you would add those together, when you look back, your forsaking to gather is probably more times than you realize. I'm not going to spend much time here, but next, like forsaking for sports. What are you teaching your children? When you forsake, as Rusty would call it, service for sports ball or gathering with the saints. What, what, do you, what, do you, what do the saints miss when you forsake gathering? Because that's really what this passage is about. It's about what other people miss when you're not gathering with them. It could also be take off so quick after service or take off so quick, especially on a Sunday morning, like before and after are some of the most valuable times of giving of yourself, stirring one another on to love and good works. Let me press in on something else here, particularly for you parents. You could indeed physically bring your kids to gather and still forsake bringing your kids to gather. Imagine, let me give you an example. Imagine your child and yourself really enjoy Ohio State football. Okay? Here's the example. And you got incredible tickets for both of you to go. But then you proceed to never talk about it till the morning of... You both go about your business without giving the game a thought. You both ride in the car to the game on your phones, never talking about the game you're about to watch. You both sit there during the game, occasionally glancing at the field and the scoreboard, but both of you are just thinking about what you're going to go do that evening or what happened the night before. Then you get back into the car and repeat the journey home, but in reverse, never talking about the game. Maybe you talk about how expensive the food was instead. You get home, you go about your separate ways. Listen, that's how some of us, particularly us men, bring our family to church. It's the same as forsaking gathering. But again, don't forsake just because of what you're intended to receive, but don't forsake because of what you're intended to give. It's not about just what we can get, even though what we get is immeasurable. The following, what I'm getting ready to talk about, will describe for you what you're meant to be. And of course, if other people are being faithful around you, what you will receive, assuming you have eyes to see it. The, the verb consider 
So, so back there, if you got your Bibles, let us consider. What does it mean by consider? It has to do with our thinking. Now, again, we're accustomed to think only of ourselves, but our thoughts are better given to others. So, so I like, I like this, like these few questions I read this week. Is someone doubting? Is someone discouraged? Is this person being tempted? Like, like literally what he means is to, to ponder this person and their state, to consider them, consider their life, consider their struggles, consider their week, consider where they're going tomorrow, consider what they're believing or not believing or failing to believe. Consider them. Someone said this, without needless prying, we should give thought to the condition of those around us. I mean, he's meaning like, don't go pester people, but give thought and consideration to those around you. If you're not doing this, then you're nothing more than a taker and a consumer of religion who are of little use for the eternal destiny of other people. I'd also encourage you, as you consider others, just as a, a word of wisdom here, don't project problems onto people. Like, as you consider them, don't go, oh, well, their problem must be this. I mean, listen, just because that was your problem yesterday doesn't mean it's their problem today, right? And also be careful in your questioning. I, I was thinking of it this way this week. So you come up to someone, oh, man, does your foot hurt? They're like, oh, well, it didn't hurt until you said something, right? Like, don't project, even in your questioning, don't, don't project problems into people's lives. And just because it's a problem for you doesn't mean it's a problem for someone else. Don't, and also, I would encourage you as you consider, don't assume you know what's best for them. Don't assume you know what's best for them. I mean, now if it's Scripture, and Scripture says they should believe A, and when they're believing this, well, you know what's best for them. But be careful. Next, stir up. Stir up. It means to incite or provoke or stimulate. To incite or provoke or stimulate. Now, I don't want to just rail on one word here, but if you would indulge me for a second. You should live in a way that's provocative. And I know that that's just a bad word in our day. Perhaps we have such lazy and pathetic Christians because no one is communicating the truth to them in a way that gets through their thick skulls. Like provocation can do. Now, again, to be provocative, to be uh, to stimulate just for the sake of drawing attention, or to be provocative just for the sake of being provocative is wrong. But to be provocative for the good of another person, to say something in a way that cuts through the mess that gets their attention, 
Like to, to do that for their good out of love for them, to break through the cloud? That's righteous. In fact, we're called to do it right here. The problem is our world doesn't want to be woken up from its stupor. We don't want to be touched when we're in sin. But it's a good grace to us when someone has the wisdom and the love and the skill to say something in a way that would cut through, that would wake us up. Kind of like my statement early on about us being most correct is certainly meant to be provocative, to get attention so that you could hear the truth. We, they should be reminded of spiritual truth because of what we are saying and how we are living. Does that make sense? So the way we live, what we say, what we don't say, should remind people of what God has said. The result of our example and conversation should be love and good works in the lives of other believers. So let me ask you a few questions. Does the way you handle yourself, words, actions, so on, does the way you handle yourself provoke others to take seriously what the Bible teaches? Does your counsel cut against the grain of worldly logic and press home the claims and promises of God? Does your behavior set a helpful model for weak or new believers? There's more questions we could ask, but if the answer is no, then you are not making the impact you should for Christ's work in this church. This is important. And let me say, especially for you men, because of the way our culture has presented men for decades now, our temptation as men is to be goofy or buffoonish. Our temptation is to play things off like, oh, I'm not that smart. Who's going to then take you serious about the things of God? For you women, your sinful temptation is to be agreeable to other women instead of provoking them on. It's going to play nice. Don't want to lose the relationship. So stir one another up. Consider. Next, encourage one another. And we'll land the plane here. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. This requires us to come alongside other people with words and actions that will strengthen them in Christ. Words and actions that will strengthen them in Christ. Listen, you can't always be dogging on someone. Now listen, again, that that person doesn't get to, to decide what is encouraging. We should let the Word of God and the Spirit walk us through what is encouraging. 
Because sometimes when someone's just down in the dumps, there ain't nothing that can encourage them, right? But God's people should be the most encouraging people ever. It should be the most encouraging people. That, that, listen, you cannot hear that and say, oh, we're just the people who always talk about good things and point out the graces in other people. That's what our world defines as encouraging. Let me do what I want to do and pat me on the back as I do it. How, how is it that we can be the most encouraging people? Because we also understand the depth of our sinfulness. And we're willing to talk about the depth of our sinfulness and the extent to which we need forgiveness. So it's in that context that you then say, hey, but you have a high priest in heaven. You have the resources of the throne room of God. That's encouragement. Why? Because the distance between what you're saying that is true and good and beautiful, between that, which, between that and what is ugly, is much greater than just saying, hey man, good job, here's your pat on the back. What you were doing was already good. Just do a little bit better. You know someone that... Uh, that you can say an encouraging word and they just never hear it as encouraging. You know what I'm saying? Some of you might live with one. Sometimes it's helpful to just stop to say the, to say the encouraging word and to look them in the eyes and say, listen, I'm encouraging you. <laughs> I just, just want you to know that. Listen, why? Because sometimes they just need woken up. They just need someone to just shake them a little bit. So how do you encourage people? You su- by supporting them. Putting your money on the line. Put your time on the line for them. By pointing out the good that God is doing through them. By leaving them good reviews. By reminding them the truths that they are forgetting and reminding them that they have God's grace to believe those truths. How incredible. Not just this is the truth and you should believe it, but you have the spirit and you have new birth to believe it. You can believe it by God's grace. So let me end with this. What a gift these nine and a half chapters of the truth of God and his work through Jesus is to us, his creation. Jesus tells us, know the truth, and the truth sets us free. We have access to God, and our priest is there. Therefore, the reasonable response is that we should hold fast our confession without wavering. We should gather together consistently and spur one another on to love and good deeds. And we should worship the one and only true and living God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Father, I pray that for all of us, it would cut through whatever stupor or whatever unbelief or wrong belief that we have. 
They will awaken our minds to, to either new birth or to new levels of enjoying your grace and understanding you for your glory. I pray that your people here would know the truth of chapters 1 through 9 and that they would live in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you and is encouraging and spurring and stirring one another up in loving good deeds. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.